Support for this podcast comes from the Florida Atlantic University College of Business, home to over 8,000 students, seven departments, six centers, and an impressive offering of interdisciplinary and professional development programs taught by the college's world-class faculty. Learn more at business.fau.edu. Hello, I'm Ryan Swano. And I'm Jen Mullins. And this is what's happening at FAU Business. This is part two in our series of podcasts about the coronavirus. And we're again joined by FAU's Dr. Jennifer Atenito. In case you didn't listen to part one in the series, Dr. Atenito is an instructor and a researcher at FAU's Health Administration Program, which is part of the larger management programs department at the FAU College of Business. She holds a doctorate in public health and has performed research on subject matters like the HIV virus. She has extensive training in epidemiology and disease prevention and is also on the curriculum committee for the FAU Center for Emergency Management. In this episode, we discuss social distancing, how to do it correctly, how it's different than quarantining, and why some countries might be more successful at it than others. If you're interested in learning more about the Health Administration Program at FAU Business, visit business.fau.edu slash health. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Dr. Atenito. Thanks again for joining us on this second episode. Hi there. Thanks for having me back again. Like the first episode where we talked about flattening the curve, that term, the other well, one of the other big terms that we hear a lot about is social distancing. So can you help explain what exactly it is, how we should do it correctly? And then is there a difference between social distancing and, let's say, uh, quarantining? Uh, yeah, okay. COVID-19, or the virus that causes it, is tiny. It's a, it's a virus. Viruses are tiny microbes. It is airborne. And when people hear that, they're like, what? It's floating around in the air. No, it's not. It attaches itself to mucus emissions, like sneezing and coughing. So it's not just floating in the air. It's attached to these, to these particles, these, these droplets. Um, the goal of the thing we call social distancing is to keep that microbe from getting into our eyes, nose, and mouth. That's pretty much bottom line it. Each person's interpretation of this thing we call social distancing tends to vary, as you've seen. (laughs) Um, If you've been out there at all in the world, you've seen um, people's measurements of what six feet are. (laughs) It's really quite different. But in general, the rules are to stand at least six feet apart, assuming that a cough or sneeze isn't going to really fly further than that. On, on average. Um, you don't gather in larger groups larger than 10, they're saying. That's very arbitrary. It's still, obviously, a group of 10 people standing six feet apart still requires some space. So what you're trying to do is get physical space. You're trying to avoid going to a place where a variety of people are going to be gathering, like the grocery store, if you don't have to go. But obviously, in order to live our lives, we do have to go places, right? The grocery store or the pharmacy or the gas station. So can you do that without risking infection? And yes, you can, actually. You have to keep that physical distance from people. That's actually really important, and it is effective. You don't 
obviously touch your face if you've touched any anything else. Um, you wash your hands like crazy and you keep your wipes on. You wipe everything down. And that's pretty much what social distancing is, exactly what you've heard. It's There are no secrets being held by the CDC on ways to avoid this. The, the um, procedures are pretty clear, I think. Self-quarantining, on the other hand, is a matter of perspective. So, so where social distancing assumes that you are uninfected and trying to avoid infection, uh, quarantining or self-quarantining suggests that you might be infected and you're avoiding infecting other people. So that's the shift in perspective. The latter requires stricter behavioral guidelines. Self-quarantine requires stricter, stricter behavioral guidelines because it's assuming somebody is infected. If you're quarantining or self-quarantining, you don't go out. If you need to leave the house for a doctor's visit or just to get some air, then definitely wear some kind of mask or at least a bandana over your nose and mouth. They're not the N95 masks that can filter the smaller particles, but they're still capable of shielding or creating a shield for others from any droplets or particles if you cough or sneeze. What they also do, and this is really important, is they suggest to other people that you might be infected. And if you're anything like me, if you see somebody with a mask on, you start to back off a little, right? You assume that they might be infected, you back off a little bit. And so that's an important message to send. If you're self-quarantined, the people in your household should keep the physical distance from you at least as much as possible. Don't share utensils. You don't share towels. You clean surfaces thoroughly. You clean everything you've touched or that person has touched. You clean your laundry frequently. So that's self-quarantining, and it obviously requires stricter behavioral guidelines. The person who's self-quarantining does not go to the grocery store, does not go to the uh, pharmacy, and does not go get the gas. I apologize if you mentioned this in, uh, when you first started that answer. Um, I'm actually unsure. Is the actual act of, let's say, standing too close to someone who's infected and that person just simply breathing next to you? Do scientists know if that would actually spread the virus to you? That's a good question. And the answer is, at least theoretically, yes. Um, sneezing and coughing produce certainly more volume of uh of liquid and velocity. So those are, um, they're more efficient modes of transmission, but the virus can actually live in breath droplets as well. Um, but you'd have to be really close to a person to in, inhale their breath. So this is a less likely risk. Um, in fact, a person talking nearby carries um, some degree of risk just because they could emit some saliva when talking. So just being close to people, obviously, it's still going to make a difference either way. But yeah, it actually can survive in, uh, in breath. I also wanted to clarify um, that people have used the word airborne on and off. And so I wanted to clarify that this is, in a sense, an airborne uh, virus. Um, it's mostly transmitted by inhaling it, and it can hang out in the air for a couple hours. But it, those aren't the greatest conditions. This isn't a super strong virus. Uh, in the air. Um, the measles is. The measles is more airborne. Um, this doesn't live as long as an aerosol. So the conditions for widespread airborne transmission are pretty limited. Okay. So I feel like we're living in the day of curbside delivery and takeout. How should the public handle packages and such from food to their homes, from restaurants and such? Well, 
It's estimated that this virus, so there, a little preliminary research took place on the life cycle of, of, of the microbe itself, and that this virus lives uh, for about 24 hours on cardboard, 72 hours on plastic or stainless steel, and for three hours as an aerosol floating. Probably not very long on soft surfaces like cloth. Temperature does make a difference. We live in a warmer climate, and this virus doesn't like warmer climates, so we're at an advantage. In my limited research, I learned that very few, if any, cases of this particular disease have occurred because of what we call fomites or surface-dwelling microbes from deliveries. The main route of transmission thus far has almost entirely been coughing and sneezing, been in the physical space of another person who has emitted, you know, these droplets, and less so from touching surfaces. Not that you shouldn't still be cautious, because it's still, again, theoretically possible to transmit the virus that way, but very few cases have, have happened that way, especially through delivery, where the surface has been away from you for a period of time. There's no clear guidance right now on handling deliveries, nothing from the CDC that I know of. To be safe, you can leave deliveries outside for a few hours in case of any aerosol particles that could be still nearby, but that's probably not good for perishable foods, of course. I can tell you what I personally would do based on the knowledge I have, and that's that I would handle the delivery when it arrives if, if I happen to be there. Discard the pack packaging outside as soon as possible. Wipe down the surfaces of the received item wash my hands and the surfaces that that item might have touched. But I don't get the impression at this point that, that there's any benefit to quarantining a delivery. Okay. I think cleaning is probably sufficient. This might be a bit of a silly question, but is there any evidence for if a restaurant worker who made your delivery food, if that person was infected and somehow was handling your food and the virus ended up on your food, if you were to ingest that, that's a great question. There have been zero cases of that. <laughs> okay. um, and, and it's really unlikely. For the most part, our, our, the restaurants that are remaining open and doing delivery are taking such great caution. I've seen, you know, the places doing real, a really good job of keeping things clean. Again, the, the microbes are not are not living a long time on surfaces, especially heated foods. It's really unlikely that the virus would survive on heated foods. It also doesn't get transmitted through our digestive tract. So, in fact, our digestive tract is a great killer. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So, last question. Why might some countries find it easier to socially distance or quarantine their citizens versus a country like the United States? I actually, I love this question. <laughs> um, so yeah, we've seen how effectively some places like Singapore and Hong Kong and Taiwan have set these behavioral limits and everyone gets in lockstep right away. And it sounds like this utopia. Why can't we do that? We're not Singapore. <laughs> they're, they're a small, rich nation with collectivist values and a renowned public health system. And Singapore, in fact, had even outlawed chewing gum and outdoor trash containers. And the public heeded these rules with complete grace. Obviously, wow. that's not... <laughs> I know, wow. <laughs> What's interesting is that these countries reacted really quickly with widespread testing, contact tracing, and that's where if somebody's infected, you find out who they've been in contact with, isolating their sick, and not as much with self-quarantine and social distancing. They've 
haven't relied on that quite as much because they've been able to really control with, uh, with the testing. Setting behavioral restrictions on the U.S. Uh, public is, as you know, kind of like herding cats. We saw last weekend how as soon as the beaches were closed down, everyone took out their boats to the sandbars to party instead. Did you guys see that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so then the Boca mayor had to shut down the boat ramp. So it's like, you know, you're kind of always sticking your finger in like the next leak. The public health in the U.S. often defers to individual liberties over the safety of the population. Not, not all the time. Obviously, there are times when our public health system has set limits on us, our liberties. But a lot of times we, we do push back. We're not collectivistic. We received contradictory constantly shifting information, so we become very distrusting, and we don't have the capacity to implement that widespread testing. People in the U.S. tend to be sort of suspicious of the government, <laughs> and we only, we only keep people at home for so long. People are not going to be very uh, well-behaved. I'm wondering, does the, the U.S. have a heavy-handed switch, basically, in its toolbox where if they realize that things are really out of control, that they that there's a switch that can be flipped and more more laws are imposed, more strict laws are imposed on all of us. Could we become that restrictive? Yes. Uh, we have never done that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but theoretically, sure. If it became that dangerous, yes. They call that draconian, right? Draconian right. responses. So, yes, we could continuously increase restrictions as needed. Absolutely. I think we're optimistic. And in the U.S., we put most of our resources towards technology and new discovery. And as you know, less so on maybe prevention or public health. And so I think we're gambling on our investment in technology and discovery to be kind of the answer here. And so if we can restrict for as little time as possible in hopes of better treatments or perhaps a vaccine, that's where, uh, where we're placing our bets. What's Happening at FAU Business is part of the FAU College of Business podcast network. Learn more at business.fau.edu slash podcasts.